Hey. We've all heard about the climate crisis. Some people are taking action. While some people have their heads in the sand. Hurricane Maria slamming into the island and as- At least 25 wildfires are burning across California alone. There is no man-made climate change. I don't think science knows, actually. Where's the proof? That's where we come in. You're listening to House on Fire, a podcast about the climate crisis where we bring those leading the fight to you. We're two activists coming to you from Ground Zero, Miami, Florida, sharing the facts so you can become informed and engaged in this movement. And our show, House on Fire, is powered by the Clio Institute, a nonprofit organization dedicated to climate change education, awareness, and advocacy. I'm JP. And I'm Gabby. Welcome to House on Fire. Today on House on Fire, we're speaking to somebody really incredible. Last time we were here in the studio, we talked about the 2020 U.S. presidential election. And we were wondering who was going to win. We were talking about what the outcomes could be. But now we know Joe Biden is the president-elect. And clearly, all of the effort that we put in to vote for climate amounted to change. Yeah, the climate candidate won. And that change is promising. But that's not to gloss over the fact that 2020 had a lot of pain in it. We lost lives to a deadly pandemic, wildfires, police brutality, intense hurricanes, the list does go on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 2020 was overwhelming to say the least. And the reality is, is that 2020 wasn't really an anomaly. The reality is that the reason 2020 sucked was because of these systems we live under. They're proving that they're oppressive, they're unsustainable. And I'm talking about the way we've powered our energy grid, systemic racism, and so much more. Right, and these are the systems that we once understood as normal. But more and more people, especially young people, have realized that they really aren't normal and they haven't been working for us. So we're taking it upon ourselves to build a better sense of what normal is. A normal where we stop the climate crisis and stop hurting people and uplift all of our communities in the process of creating solutions for this new normal. And 2021 holds so much promise for change if we put the work in. Yeah, and and the truth is that we, we really don't have any choice but to do those things. We need to transition into a green energy economy that uplifts all of our communities. And an organization that's played a really pivotal role in doing that and giving hope is the Sunrise Movement. And on this episode of House on Fire, we're going to hear from Varshni Prakash. She is the founding executive director of Sunrise. So from leading a divestment campaign on her college campus to spearheading the movement for a Green New Deal, Varshni really embodies one of the most remarkable journeys in the climate movement, and we're excited to hear about that journey today and how we move forward. Welcome to the show, Varshni. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Of course. So we've just gotten past an intense election moment, to say the least, and the climate candidate won. But as I'm sure you can agree, there's still loads of work to be done. How have you been in this post-election moment and how have you been staying grounded? Oh my God, yes. It has been intense. I'm sure it's been intense for everybody listening, y'all as well. And it, um, I mean, I think how I was feeling is a bit of relief, like just the election was such a black hole in my mind. You know, anything could happen after the state. We could be in a sustained period of like, you know, Donald Trump staging a coup, which is, you know, low-key still, that is still going on. 
we could be, you know, Donald Trump could be president again, Joe Biden could be president. It was just like a total unknown. And so I'm feeling some level of relief that at least we know what we're dealing with and now can, can, can march on. Um, but I also was like, I needed to take a, a bit of a step back. I actually took a, 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 a few weeks off and, um, to just take care of myself. I mean, we had, you know, this book launch that happened. There was all this electoral work that was going on and, um, needed a bit of a, a breather just to like reground, get my strength back and my creativity and, and all of that. And, and it was probably one of the best choices that I've made this year because it's been, you know, just constantly exhausting. Yeah, I really love that. And I, just like JP and I, we both really value that and just taking rest within this resistance. Um, because the work we do is tiring. Organizing is tiring. It's emotionally and draining. And to really ground us back into the work that we do, this is something that we ask all of our guests. What woke you up to the climate emergency and how did your organizing journey begin? Yeah. I mean, I would say it sort of started like long before I understood the destruction and the the violence that was happening because of environmental damage and, and racism and, and climate change. Like this was a story about falling in love with the world around me. Um, when I was a kid and um, I, I just loved everything about the world around me. I loved the trees. I loved to spend time outside, like mucking around, making mud pies. Like I loved animals. I loved the soil. I loved everything that was the earth and, and, and the environment around me. Um, and I have like so many memories of me and my best friend, just like, you know, pottering around in, in, in the woods behind my house and thinking it was just this magical, magical place. And as I got older, I, I, I started realizing through school, but, you know, also stories that I was hearing about communities that look like me half a world away from where my family's from in, in, in India that were just suffering so much damage, like tens of thousands of farmers committing suicide because they just couldn't keep up. Um, they mm -hmm. couldn't sustain their lives. Like seeing, um, you know, piles of trash, like twice the size of Texas sitting in the Pacific Ocean, like the death toll from Hurricane Katrina and how it affected black folks, like the monsoon seasons that were getting worse and worse and ultimately ended up, you know, killing thousands and thousands of people in um, communities that my parents had grown up in. And so I think when I got older, I was like, what kind of world do we live in where we have so much, we have so much abundance and yet like billions of people are going hungry or don't have access to basic needs. Like we are, you know, we're privatizing our water. We're, mm -hmm. we're, we're polluting our air. The like the, the, the very basic necessities that every human needs to survive, we are not allowing and largely because of greed. And so that was like what I think catalyzed my desire to get involved. And I didn't really know what to do for a long time. Like I was like, you know, joining recycling clubs and like bothering my mom to turn off the lights in her, in her house all the time. And like doing all of those things. And I think it wasn't until I got to college and sort of tripped and fell into a, a fossil fuel divestment campaign on campus that I realized like this isn't about just making individual consumer choices. This is about shifting an entire system away from from extraction and pollution and competition and hurting each other to that of one of, um, you know, equity and um, right. fairness and protection for all people. 
Right. Yeah, and it sounds like that's sort of what gave rise to what the Sunrise Movement is today, all of those realizations. And, you know, it's interesting because from organizing with friends on campus, like you just said, um, you know, working on a divestment campaign, you've gone to shaping presidential policy with figures like Bernie Sanders and AOC. So it's safe to say that your organizing has grown and changed and evolved. But what is something that has remained the same throughout it all? Mm, that's such a good question. Um, something that has stayed the same throughout it all. I think, I think one of the things that has stayed the same throughout it all is just a, a deep sense of what is at stake. And I would say for anybody that wants to take action on any issue, like it does not matter what you're working on, having a firm understanding and really spending time exploring and meditating on what it is that is at stake for you. Like, who are the people? Who are the communities? Who are the families? What is the land? What is the thing that you are fighting for in all of this is the constant that was there for me, even when I was 14 and 15 and just, you know, discovering what the climate crisis was, even when I was running my fossil fuel divestment campaign and, and, and now at Sunrise. Yeah. And I mean, I want to hear, you know, after that college moment, how was Sunrise born? What were the seeds that were planted in order to create this like organization, which now has so much power? Yeah. I mean, so this was what, like 2015, 2016. So we were at the tail end of the Obama years. A lot of us had like gotten involved in in organizing during the Obama years. I was working on investment were a bunch of other co-founders of Sunrise. Others were working on like legislative campaigns at the state level. Other people were working on international climate negotiations, whatever. And I think at that time we were like, okay, cool. The Obama era won some stuff on climate and those were important, you know, uh, evolutions. But like we were nowhere near solving this problem. And in fact, it was getting worse every single day. And not only that, but we have... Uh, Donald Trump now to contend with as well and this rising authoritarianism and white nationalism that was sweeping not just the United States, but all around the world. Um, and so I think in that moment, we were feeling like a sense of, of just desperation, anger, fear that the movements that we had were not qualified, were not enough um, to solve the problem at hand. And no one organization is ever going to be enough, but we were feeling like there was some potential that young people could reach in this country that was not being met at that time. And so we, you know, embarked on this process of, of bringing together about a dozen leaders from across the climate movement who were aligned on the need to build a climate movement that centered young people that could get to scale, that could bring in tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of new people to our movement who had never considered themselves activists or organizers or agents of change ever in their past. We had to speak to ordinary people as much as possible. We needed a movement that really believed that building a multiracial cross-class movement was possible, that we could include people who had long felt left out by the climate movement that focused on, you know, parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, but not on human lives. Um, And, you know, the other part of it was just seeing that the climate movement had no political power whatsoever. Um, Like we didn't have the ability to shape or define priorities for the nation. We didn't have the ability to elect climate champions to office. And 
we were fed up. <laughs> we were like, young people have a lot of power if we choose to take it. And I think that, that you know, that shows up in our, our, our theory of change of building both people power and political power and bringing that into one coherent strategy and agenda. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think that's that's one of the most remarkable things about Sunrise and why like I gravitated towards it because it offered this sense of like actual strategic power with also like integrity for this movement. And I've had my own experience with the Sunrise movement. I have spoken about it on an episode before, but you know, this past President's Day, 2019, I joined 150 high schoolers in Washington, D.C. Uh, we took over the Capitol building to demand climate action from our senators. And in the midst of it all, you know, singing while my friends were being arrested to the backdrop of this giant banner that said, Senator, step up or step aside. I remember feeling this sense of power that I'd never felt before. And I find that to be a very resonant thing with a lot of other people in Sunrise. And I want to ask you, was there a moment in Sunrise's history where you yourself thought, oh, shit, we're really doing this? <laughs> yeah, that's oh, that's so beautiful, JP. I love that. And I, I also like, I feel like I have that moment. The special thing about being part of Sunrise is I feel like I have that moment on like a monthly basis. <laughs> it's like honestly hard to pick one time where I was like, oh my God, we're doing this. Um, because I, I literally feel that, you know, constantly, like we just, right now, like Sunrise is, is, is literally responsible in many ways. Obviously lots of people are making this happen. I'm not saying it's just Sunrise, but Sunrise has called for and, and promoted, um, you know, getting climate champions to an office of climate mobilization uh, in Biden's administration that will have direct connections and relationships to the president and that and, and, and mandate that climate change is a priority for every single agency in the federal office, in the federal government. And like that demand and that campaign is being met in large part because young people are being so vocal about it. I think, you know, if I'm going back on a specific example, um, Oh, there are a few, like there's, I mean, obviously the Pelosi action from 2018 where we took over Nancy Pelosi's office was one of them. I think in large part, like I remember this moment where um, the night before the action itself, I, you know, we were at this action training with 200 young people. Um, and <laughs> I remember right before we were about to do the training on civil disobedience and, and what it meant if you were risking and were going to be arrested in Pelosi's office the following day, like right before that, I had been taking a nap on a tiny couch because I was so exhausted. So I woke <laughs> up at like 5 a.m. and had been like helping facilitate all day. And my friend Evan wakes me up and he's like, Barsh, Barsh, you have to wake up. Like AOC's on her way. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> and he was like, AOC is on her way. And so is um, Rashida Tlaib. Like, you need to, to wake up because you have to, uh, like, introduce them. And I remember just, like, waking up and happily, like, writing down some stuff and getting up and, like, AOC walking through the door and people slowly realizing that she was right there. And, <laughs> and I just started crying, like, just falling. I think part of it was probably exhaustion, but part of it was just this like sense of holy shit, like something big is about to happen tomorrow. Yeah. Like something big is about to happen. Yeah. And like for the first time it felt like 
like this new uh, generation of politicians, this new generation of of movement leaders, like we were joining forces, this new like policy ideas that we, they're not really new policy ideas, but you know, whatever, like this, the, the concept of the Green New Deal and we like all of those forces were coming together. Um, and it felt like some strange state. And I think like the way it went down the next phase is obviously history and, and, you know, promoted the Green New Deal into, to, to public consciousness in a big way. But I think like, I will always remember that night before where it was like, people still didn't know who Sunrise was. Like people still hadn't heard of a, a Green New Deal in a big way, but mm-hmm. like there was a feeling in our hearts that, wow, like something is happening. Um, yeah. The other moment was when that kid like <laughs> went to Diane Feinstein's office oh. and totally like <laughs> tracked her down for failing to do anything about the climate crisis. And then we watched an SNL skit of that exact <laughs> encounter. And I saw my friend Mo, who I had known for so long, played by an SNL actress. And I was like, <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> That's <laughs> how you know you're making an impact, right? Yeah, like you're on totally. SNL now. I was like, oh my God. Yeah. yeah. There's a few moments like that, but those are a couple. Yeah. Well, that I mean, all those moments are incredible, especially the Nancy Pelosi one, of course. Um, and you've mentioned a bunch of times, of course, the Green New Deal, one of the main efforts of the Sunrise Movement's work. Um, so let's talk about it for a bit because I think it's really relevant. You know, it's been talked about this past year, of course. It relates so much to the multitude of crisis that we're seeing, and it's better be talked about so much more moving into the next year and with the next administration. But, you know, it's been called radical. It's been called far-fetched. So I want to hear how, how do you respond to those comments and what is something that everybody should actually know about it? To me, and the way that we talk about the Green New Deal is, the Green New Deal is essentially a name for the sweeping economic policies that we will need to create over the next decade or decades to fully tackle the climate crisis, address racial and economic inequality while we do it, um, and do it in such a way that leaves no person or community behind. And this means, you know, and do so in a way that is in line with what the science is telling us. Mm -hmm. Um, Scientists around the world, like tens of thousands of scientists have come together and told us we have just mere years to radically transform our economy, like how we grow our food, how we get from place to place, the way we build our homes, how we construct our buildings, et cetera. Like we have just years to completely turn the table on on the way that we do all of these essential things that define how human civilization works. And we need to get moving on that extremely quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I hear people say things like radical and impractical and things like that, I'm like, no, to me, the truly radical, impractical thing to do would be to pretend and hide under the covers mm-hmm. And kick the can down the road and act as if the greatest existential threat to human civilization as we know it, we're not at our doorstep. Right. Um, and so, you know, like, let's think about what we mean when we say Green New Deal. Like, a lot of people, when they hear how Fox News talks about it, think it's this 
scary thing that's all about pain and punishment. But in actuality, it is about investing in America again. It is about creating millions and millions of jobs, good paying jobs, unionized jobs. It is about creating and supporting a diverse, thriving workforce to do the work of addressing climate change. It means guaranteeing the right to clean air and clean water to every human being in this country and beyond. It is about supporting other nations to weather the storm, literally, and supporting their own transitions towards renewable energy. This is about ensuring that communities that will already experience the levels of warming that have already occurred are supported financially and otherwise to recover after, you know, derechos and, and hurricanes and droughts and wildfires and so many other things that are already impacting our communities. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we see this as like a, a, a program and a socioeconomic project that will span years of time that won't be just one bill or one, you know, piece of legislation. And it's all of it tailored towards improving people's lives and as concretely as possible while addressing the climate crisis. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think you put it perfectly where this vision really is not radical or far-fetched. It's really the most pragmatic and necessary way to deal with a crisis of historic proportions. I mean, we've said that on every episode here. And to me, radical, I mean, what is radical? Defending why some people should get asthma because of air pollution. What is radical? Justifying cities going underwater. What is radical? Investing millions of dollars in oil wars abroad, but not being able to invest that money into our own communities. So it's really just like, strange, what we call radical. And a lot of the opposition really talks about the Green New Deal taking stuff away versus what the Green New Deal actually is, which is giving more that we've denied so many communities for so long. And I often entertain what a Green New Deal would look like for Miami. And, you know, in the new book that you were just talking about, Winning the Green New Deal, you entertain the idea of what a Green New Deal might look like for East Boston. What would like the vision of a Green New Deal be for the broader context of the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, there's, oh God, there's so many things. Like, to me, the Green New Deal for for the nation is like in all of government, at all levels, like federal, local, state, uh, approach to tackling climate crisis in every sector of the economy, right? So we mean from housing to transportation to the power sector, and beyond, like I, to land use, like you go on and on about what what all of this entails because it's, it's virtually everything. Um, and so, you know, let's say we're just taking um, what's a good one, like buildings and and housing. Like this might mean um, the federal government actually takes it upon itself to revitalize all of the public housing stock, and that is, you know literally falling apart around this country and ensure that every single person in America has access to housing regardless of income and that that housing is clean, that it is affordable, that is powered by renewable energy. It has access to green space and it ensures a good quality of life for its residents. So that's like one example in the housing sector. You could require that every single building that gets built uh, over the next few years and you know, forevermore um, 
is required to be net zero emissions. Um, And you could do that like literally tomorrow. So like that, you could take virtually every sector in transportation. Like right now we invest so much of our money in highways. And yes, we do need to repair our roads in many ways. But also, why can't we invest the same amount of money that we invest in highways also into mass transit and into, you know, making sure that we have efficient, affordable ways of getting from place to place. And and like the way that we built the interstate highway system, we can build an interstate railway system. Um, and so do you guys want me to keep going or? <laughs> no, like, we can talk about like, how this country can look like, forever. Yeah. That, you see, that's the crazy thing about that. Just talking about the Green New, in general, Green New Deal in general, because you're reimagining every sector of society. It's, it's, it's endless. And so, you know, with that being said, frameworks like the Green New Deal, they often feel far away because they really call our current systems into question. There's so many things to reimagine, but that's also what's so beautiful about it. It's an opportunity. But many, um, but it's interesting because many Green New Deal-like initiatives are actually already taking place today in frontline communities, whether they're called Green New Deal or not, whether they're led by Sunrise or not. So I'm curious to hear if there are any inspiring stories that you've seen take place like this on the front lines. Yeah, totally. There's so many. I mean, I feel like especially at the state and local level, I have felt really excited by some things. Like, for example, um, they're in in New York State recently. um, They passed, actually, I think it was in 2018. And this is actually such a great story of how political power, policy, and movements work together. So there, you know, for years, there was some of the most ambitious legislation at the state level was getting held up because there were a group of Democrats that were caucusing with Republicans in the state legislature in New York and then stopping and prohibiting climate policy amongst other sort of like, you know, things that people were trying to get done. And so Sunrise, along with a lot of other organizations, helped overturn um, the rules of, uh, you know, help flip that. Um, legislature and then were able to, for, for years prior, had also been working in this giant coalition of just dozens and dozens of organizations that represented labor, environmental justice groups, like other groups in civil society, um, Big Greens, Sunrise, etc., and had developed like a vision and a, a legislation and a policy for how New York State could get to 100% renewable energy could do so by investing that money directly back into communities of color and working families. Um, And like they ultimately got that passed in large part because of both political pressure, because they had built up that coalition and done a ton of relationship building because of movement pressure. And they had like a policy that was ready to go when they got the political power that was necessary. So tons of um, great examples for here, but I mean, the number that Joe Biden took for his plan, for his Build Back Better plan, was in large part based off of this Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act that New Yorker News had created over the time. So that's one of them. And like that, there are literally dozens of other examples. Like in Illinois, um, they're talking about how do we support a plan to employ formerly incarcerated people and support them with training and job placement in the renewable energy sector as part of a broader like climate jobs act. There's like so much that is, is, is happening and we could talk about it forever, but I think there's tons of solutions. Like I, I think what it all points out to me is people have the ingenuity. People have the creativity. People have the 
will to make it happen. And now we need the political power and we need the resources to just make it happen. Um, Because I really believe we have like so many of the answers already at our fingertips. Absolutely. And I mean, talking about the vision behind a Green New Deal, I just imagine, you know, just so much of the things that we've been told, like, this is the way things are, like having to work several mind numbing jobs just to make ends meet. And just all of these things that we have an opportunity to change now became so apparent during the reign of an administration that, you know, at the bare minimum, just denied all of the science and really gave us no alternative. And the interesting part about that is that, you know, without this counter, without this opposition, our ideas for how bad the problem was might not have been as imaginative as they could have been. I I always think of that. And my fear now is that, you know, I I don't want complacency to, to come in place. And you've worked with top policymakers, many of whom are entering the new administration. What kind of movement do we need now to hold them accountable so that they keep their promises? Yeah, a really big one. <laughs> um, well, JP, <laughs> you know as well as I do that we're dedicating the next year to really answering this question. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know that I have the clearest answer, but I know it, you know, there's some ingredients that I know it needs to have. One, even more than just masses of people, we need super dedicated, um, trained volunteers and organizers that are working in their communities to build up lots and bring in lots of new people into our movement. And we need thousands and thousands of those individuals. Um, And so I think we need to really invest in our leadership development programs and particularly building up the leadership of of young people of color, of young women and queer folks, um, and really equipping young working class folks as well and like really equipping those people to lead um, at the local and state level, even while we are continuing to do the federal organizing, I think we need to make sure that we are developed, like we are figuring out how, you know, it's not just like flashy mediagenic actions anymore. Like we need to have a real sense of, okay, if we want to do a strike. What does it mean to really do a strike mm-hmm. and like turn out right. thousands and thousands of young people in high schools or middle schools or whatever it is and, you know, put a stop, like actually win tangible victories, not just sort of like awareness raising. So that's also important. But like, what do we need to win over the next couple of years? We're in the process of developing, like, what is our strategy for the next three to five years? And I think within that, we need a vision of, of not just how does the executive branch do the right things in the Department of Energy to X, Y, and Z, but also like, how is this a project that Americans at all levels are, are taking part in. Mm. Um, and that is like a fundamental question, I think, of, of how do you build out really strong local and regional campaigns in addition to also, you know, targeting the federal sector? Yeah. Yeah. And this, yeah, what you said leads so beautifully until it's to my next question, which kind of going to start wrapping the beautiful conversation up. But like, the thing is that you mentioned a lot how we need more leaders. We need more people in the movement, simply put. Um, We need more young people, people of color, queer people taking leadership roles. And it just, you know, it just shows that clearly everybody starts somewhere. And I think the the thing about like the end of this year, and yes, we talked about how 2020 is is, is no anomaly, 
but it also presents like a sense of hope for the next year. Every new year does that. And I think a really cool idea of looking at 2021 is the idea of like a climate resolution. Now, every new year, people make resolutions. And I think that people should really consider what their role could be in this movement. So what are some things that people can commit to doing to help advance this movement in 2021? Oh, yes. So good. Well, I think there's a couple things. One, to me, it's like, you know, you don't have to have a particular skill set. You don't have to have a particular intellect. You don't, you know, I spent so many years of my life thinking I was not smart enough or, you know, not skilled enough or not educated enough, whatever it was to, to do the work. And it's just not true. And I think to me, really the small choices that you make every single day do matter. And I don't mean the small choices like choosing to put something in a recycling bin versus putting it in the trash, which is also great. But I mean like the choices about how and where and what you're going to direct your like life energies towards. Um, and making the choice in 2021 that you are going to, you know, maybe join a climate organization locally or a sunrise chapter or start your own. Maybe you're going to convene a group of people at your high school or, you know, when we can hang out together um, <laughs> and, and begin conversations about how you could start transforming your community. Maybe there's another organization that you could be a part of, or if climate isn't your thing, like, you know, and you're involved in, in other issues, like how could you bring climate into that conversation around racial justice, around economic justice or education or whatever it is that you're working on. Cause I can tell you the climate crisis matters to every single one of those things. Yeah. And so, you know, I think the key is identifying what your barriers are right now and choosing, making the choices every single day, even if it's a small thing to move past those barriers and do something that makes a difference in the world. Cause I can tell you, like I, you know, I didn't, I had no idea that I was going to be here a decade ago. I had no idea. Um, and it was just about following my heart and my intuition and knowing that I wanted to make the world a better place and choosing to just dive in head first and making mistakes, a lot of mistakes along the way and working through that heartache and becoming more resilient and strong through that process. And that is how I got here. Not because of any like, you know, yeah, not because I like put myself to be on <laughs> to like becoming executive director when I was 16, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Absolutely. And I mean, this conversation really culminates in just like an intense amount of hope for me going into this next year and this next chapter of the climate movement and talking to powerful leaders like you and Gabby and so many of the folks who we've had on this podcast really inspires a sense of solidarity in me. So I just want to thank you so much for coming on to House on Fire. Of course. Thank you for having me. And thank you guys for just this conversation has been great. And, and the work you're doing is phenomenal. And just really appreciate you. We'll keep in touch for more. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Thanks, y'all. Thank you, Varsh. This episode of House on Fire is brought to you by The Solutions Project, an organization combining the efforts of leaders in science, business, and culture to equitably transition the United States' energy use to 100% renewable energy. Check them out at thesolutionsproject.org. 
Thanks for listening to House on Fire, a youth-led climate podcast powered by the Clio Institute, a nonprofit dedicated to climate change education and advocacy. You can find us on Instagram at House on Fire Podcast, Twitter at House on Fire Pod, and listen to our show on all your favorite platforms for podcasts.